All right, guys, I am super pumped for you guys to hear this episode with Bones. There's not, maybe not anybody out there that's been along for the ride that's not a player that can speak to more historical moments in recent Masters history than this guy. It's kind of kicking off our Masters preview coverage. There's going to be a lot more to come. I don't want to name the specifics yet in case any of it falls through, but hoping to get some player perspectives as well as some architecture perspectives here in the coming days. So, uh, super excited about that. On that note, um, let's talk about Callaway Live. They're back with Season 4. They're kicking off in a big way with the Masters champ, Sergio Garcia, on this week's show. So go over to CallawayGolf.com slash Callaway Live. Also, on Apple TV, you can search for Callaway Live, or I'm sorry, Callaway TV in the App Store. You can watch the full episode. Sergio shares some interesting insights from his Masters win, why he chose to switch to Callaway. It's not, not every year that the uh, defending Masters champ makes an equipment change. And he also plays the newlywed game with his wife, Angela. Check it out now. Tune in every Tuesday night, 6 p.m. Pacific for Callaway Live. Upcoming guests include Xander Shoffley, Mike Wan, as well as Bill Simmons. That's callawaygolf.com slash callawaylive. Let's get to Bones. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything different? All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. My main man, he's back. It's been too long. Bones, how we doing? Doing great, Chris. Thanks for having me back. Thank you for coming back. Um, when was the last time that last year that the Masters occurred that you did not caddy at it? I think it was 1994. Uh, I was counting for Phil, and he broke both of his legs in a skiing accident. And uh, he did not play. He did, he, he, he did it the week of, like, the first week of the Florida swing and uh, came back at, like, Colonial, something like that. So he missed the Masters, and it was not particularly easy. Are you, and we'll get to the, we got, I got a million Masters questions to ask you, and we'll get to that. But so far, you know, the last time we talked to you, you were still on Phil's bag. Uh, I want to know how, how are you enjoying your role so far with NBC and what's that transition been like so far? Yeah, I'm enjoying it a lot. It's, it's been great. It's, it's, it's fun and interesting to do something, you know, different for the first time in, you know, almost 30 years. And, uh, I've enjoyed it. It's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot to learn. And it's one of those businesses where you really don't learn it unless you kind of, you know, make a mistake and then you learn from your mistakes, you know, pretty quickly, hopefully. So, um, I'm, I'm trying to get better at it and get more comfortable and, and learn the ins and outs. But it's, it's been a great experience. We had made some, we commented that uh, during the WGC in Mexico, we were, I, I, I do understand it, but you were, you were not following Phil's group during that uh, final round. And for his, for his first win in five years, was there a reasoning behind that from a production standpoint? Well, I think that the, the thing that, that we, we want to be cognizant of, and granted that was obviously a tournament being played in a different country, but, you know, we want it to be a long enough period of time where, you know, it's it's less likely or it's not going to happen whereby anybody yells anything out. You know, I went out and covered a group this year at the, at the in the Palm Springs event, and it was the group behind Phil. And and there were still a couple of people yelling things relative to, you know, supportive of me, supportive of Phil, whatever, or, you know, Phil's over there or here's bones or whatever. And we, we just don't want that. I mean, we certainly don't want that for Phil. Because, you know, he's got a job to do out there, as do I, but but he's a player and he's the most important thing going on out there. And uh, the last thing I want to do is to bring any kind of unnecessary attention to him or, or the, the fact that I'm out there. I figured it was something along those lines. So that that does make sense. But uh, I know the question was being asked, so it's good to, good to hear the reasoning behind it. Um, so I want to know about your kind of the before you caddied in your first uh, first Masters. Were there any caddies out there that kind of took you under their wing or, or gave you some pointers before you showed up or as you arrived? Not not really. I was lucky before my first Masters and that I, I, I was caddying for Larry Mize in 90 and 91 there that um, I caddied for a guy that that was very um, detail oriented that had, you know, he, he and, and knew a lot about the course. He had, you know, grown up in the Augusta, Georgia area, knew a lot about it, knew a lot of things, knew how he wanted to play the course. And I'll be honest with you, it's 
you know, I, I've gone there so much, you know, since 1990. And I learned something new about the golf course last year during one particular wind that was blowing on the first hole. So you never stop learning and you, you acquire as much knowledge you ca- as you can. And you store it away. and You're never going to forget it. Uh, and and uh, anyway, but early on, it, I was lucky to work for a guy that, that shared a lot with me. What was the thing you learned last year on the first hole? I learned that when the wind is hard left to right and in on one, which is often the case. I can't tell you off the head, off the top of my head, what, what direction that is. But when it's hard in left to right on one, that if you drive it in the fairway on two, you end up getting help on your second shot that you don't anticipate. <laughs> so that was that planned? <laughs> it, it, no, it was just a shot. It was just a shot was hit. And I remember watching it thinking that shot's getting help. And then the, the wind ended up blowing that direction three of the four days. So we went with we went with the help, you know, later in the week and it worked. And it was just, you know, you know, number 206 things of, that I've learned at Augusta National that, that I'll never forget. You know, so something as silly as that, you know, as a caddy, you're just doing anything you can to save your player a shot out there. And that was just something that we that we picked up on. All right, let's see if we can uncover the the other 205 here because that's that's already fascinating to me. Uh, let's say you're catting for somebody playing in the Masters for the first time, like a rookie this year. What's something they need to know before arriving or something you, that you would tell them right off the bat about the golf course? Well, I would certainly pre-warn them that, that they have the option at Augusta of changing the course radically overnight. Now, it hasn't happened as much here lately as it did back in the early 2000s. But there was a stretch of years where you would be out there on Tuesday and Wednesday and it would come, you know, you'd play in the par three and you'd think you were, you know, ready for action on Thursday. And you'd get out there on Thursday and you'd be stunned as to how much faster the greens were in 24 hours or maybe, you know, it was tougher to chip around the greens because they cut the grass a little bit lower just to kind of expect the unexpected, but they do have the ability at Augusta National to change the course radically more so I think than any golf course you could ever go to. So that would be one thing um, for sure. Is it, I mean, so a lot of guys take trips to play the course well in advance of the tournament. Is that kind of a futile experiment as far as, cause the course can play so, so different from a, from a firmness standpoint and whatnot. I mean, what, when you go in advance of the tournament, what are you looking to accomplish? I think you're certainly you're, you're you're reassuring what your game plan is because there's so many different ways to play holes and to play hole locations out there. Um, I think you're looking for certainly changes in the course because, as we all know, and and, and this, let me go on record saying I'm the biggest Augusta, Augusta National fan there is. The, the the members, the tournament itself, I love everything about it. Um, but you know, that being said, you can go there whether it's in the last 20 years, 10 years, five years, and there are changes made to the course that they don't necessarily publicize. Um, I think that they said that they tend to redo two greens a year there and they put them back together, you know, you know, identically. But I I remember a couple of years ago, them, you know, saying, okay, the, the following changes were made, you know, since last year's event. And we went over to the 13th hole and that little low area left and behind that green wasn't nearly as low as it had been before. Well, everybody agreed about it. You ask your caddy friends, you know, your player notices it, you know, what have you. And you, and you realize that a change has been made that hasn't necessarily been publicized. And, you know, you, you, you make the, cha- you, you, you know, you make the adjustment based on that. Hmm. Wow. Do you, I mean, we're going to get to the winning years here because there's, I have a, a million questions to ask you about those, but the stretch that Phil had leading up to his first year in 2000, his first win in 2004, what do you remember most from that stretch from 99 to 2003 in those agonizing close calls? I think he had three straight third plate, third place finishes leading up to 04. Yeah, that sounds right. I, it was just, you want to win so badly. And, and I was, I, I lived a long, a big part of my life in the state of Georgia. So I wanted to, I wanted it for Phil and, and, and I wanted to see him win, you know, that much more just because of that, because it is just such an iconic event and, and you love it and you go there year after year and you know that it's a, a course, you know, that if every single PGA tour event was played at Augusta national, Phil would have 150 wins or something like that. You know, it's just a great, great place for him. But, um, 
it was tough, but you, you figured it was going to happen. And it was just a matter of, of, of getting a break here and there and continue to play good golf. I remember one year he played with Greg Norman in the first round. It was early in his career. I want to say 95, 96. And he shot 65 or I think it was 65 the first round. And I just remember thinking, man, this guy talking about Phil can really, really play this course. And he just put on an absolute clinic out there. And so you wanted it to happen. You know, we were patient. And, you know, certainly Mike Weir winning in 2003, uh, a left-hander, you know, I was like, oh, my gosh, another lefty won there before Phil did, as great a player as Mike was and is. But uh, you had to be patient and just wait for things to fall in place. Was there a like a, any kind of shift from a maturity standpoint, strategy standpoint, or anything in advance of 2004 that allowed him to get over the hump? Or was it just his time? No, he certainly started becoming much more efficient inside of 160 yards, he did these towel drills uh, where he would throw towels down in like 10 or 15 yard increments. And, and he got really, really sharp with the scoring clubs. And that, that certainly helped that had happened kind of between the tournaments in 03 and 04. So that was a factor and certainly playing, he birdied 12 on Sunday in 04 and just, you know, threw the ball down, you know, and, and, and it was, you know, basically a 160 yard shot and hit a, an eight iron to 12 feet and, and uh, and and made the putt, but 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 having that kind of under that kind of pressure and, and leading the tournament, and that actually not leading the tournament, but trying to catch Ernie Els and and needing a two to kind of jumpstart his final round, you know, being sharp in, with those kinds of numbers was was huge in terms of that win, that first win. We are actually going to rewatch the 2004 Masters tonight, and we're going to do a live broadcast uh, on on Periscope with uh, with with the with the listeners and followers. So, I, people are going to be very fat, they're going to open up this podcast on Wednesday morning after having done that, and be very excited to hear these stories. But uh, in advance of us rewatching this, what's something about that day that you'd say maybe not a lot of people rem- remember or or are even aware of? Well, if I, if you don't mind, I'd like to tell a story about something that happened on I think on Friday. Of course. Um, you know, the thing that was frustrating at that point about not winning majors was was that, you know, you would hear Tiger say, and, and I remember Duvall saying it, that, you know, to but, but Tiger especially, to win a major, two things have to happen. You have to play really, really well, and you have to get lucky. And, and, and I don't care who you are or how good you are, any tournament won on the PGA Tour – you're going to the guy that wins the tournaments can look back on that week and think of a couple of things that happened that were just, you know, crazy good breaks that kind of keep your momentum going. And, and you, you start thinking, man, this could be my week. And Phil on Friday that week drove it in the 13th fairway and had hit a four iron into the back right pin there on 13 and overcooked his draw. And the ball overdrew, hit on the right side of the green, and the momentum of it carried it into Race Creek. And, you know, big groan from the patrons that are up there by the green. So we know it's wet. And uh, we walked the 215, 20 yards up there to where it was. And, you know, this gets back to the changes in the course. You know, be, you know, Grays Creek now is just nothing but solid water. But back then, there were patches of turf in the middle of this creek. And there was one about the size of a manhole cover in the middle of the creek. And this ball was sitting on it. It was an island unto itself in the middle of this creek, perfectly manicured green grass. And the ball was sitting up on it so that the left-hander could play a shot perfectly off of it. And I swear to you, he could hit driver out of this lie. It was so good. (laughs) And he damn near chipped it in for eagle. Uh, He chipped it in and made four. And when he went on to win the tournament a couple of days later, we, we, we both talked about how we didn't say it. We didn't verbalize at the time, hey, this might be the week, you know, to get an incredibly good break like that and pick up potentially a shot, shot and a half. You know, it, it, it was that extra kick in the pants you needed to maybe go on and win. Before that final round in 2004, did it did the moment or did the scenario feel any different to you than any of his previous close calls? Uh, that's a good question. Um, the, what was tough was that he shot 38 on the front nine. He didn't play that badly. Uh, I, I just remember he bogeyed five and there was another bogey in there somewhere. I can't remember if there was a birdie or not, but uh, there were two or three bogeys on the front and you, and we were behind the eight ball and Ernie was making this huge charge, which included making Eagle on eight. And I think Ernie was in the group in front of us, I believe, because I do remember, you know, 
being on being on uh, 8T and waiting for Ernie to hit an iron shot into eight and hearing this huge roar and the ball had ended up rolling up there to six, eight feet for Eagle and he made it. And of course, at that point, Ernie had won multiple majors and he was, you know, as good a player, you know, other than Tiger as anybody in the game. And it was like, oh, boy, here we go. And, and Phil knew as he made the turn there on Sunday, he was not going to win that tournament unless he did something extraordinary on the back. Um, I mean, he ended up shooting 31 and birding five of the last seven, which is pretty extraordinary. But uh, it, it was it was, you know, when we were out there on that front nine, it was it was tough sledding. And, you know, you've got all these people out there. Phil is very, very popular in the state of Georgia. He won this big junior event there a number of times. He won the Atlanta tournament a number of times and folks, uh, he won the tour championship a couple of times, I think. And uh, so folks there liked him and, 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 and people at the masters wanted him to win. And when you're out there and you're getting behind the eight ball or early on Sunday, it's tough. So that, that 12th hole that you mentioned, so as you said, he was two over for the day going into that 12th hole. Uh, I want to know, kind of from your, your caddy perspective, that 12th hole, I think we can, we can agree, sets up pretty well for a left-handed player in that, you know, for a right-hander, if you, you know, when you miss right, typically that means you miss short, whereas for a left-hander, if you miss right, that may mean you pulled it a little bit and you miss longer. What was Phil's strategy, or what is, I guess you could, you could say, what is Phil's strategy on that hole? Knowing, does he know that he has an advantage on the field with that back right pin position? Well, I think he knows that Augusta National, this is, this is my opinion, I certainly can't speak for him, but Augusta National is the greatest left-handed course ever. Um, I think that's why Phil's done what he's done. You know, Phil's probably going to win that tournament again. Bubba's got as good a chance as anybody. Mike Weir has won the tournament. There are several crucial tee shots there that are easier for lefties than they are for righties. And you've hit the nail on the head. 12 is probably the prime example, um, certainly to those right pins. You could get back to the tee shots on 10 and 13. It's much easier to hit a big slice off the tee as a lefty on those dogleg lefts, especially on 13, than it is to hit a draw, right? Mm -hmm. So... So those those shots, those shots are, are, are play in the lefty's hands. But to your point, yeah, a guy like Phil is going to absolutely know that, that the way that green shape is on 12 is, is a better shape for him than it is for the righties in the field. So had he that birdie putt that he lined up from behind the hole, had he had that putt in prior years? I mean, he, he's, he drained it, he fist pumped, and that's really the thing that kicked him off. Did he? And we've talked, I think, in the past about how you know you don't you don't read putts at Augusta. You learn the breaks. Is that a putt that he had experience with, and he knew exactly what the read was, or what was the conversation like before that putt? Yeah, absolutely. He said later on, he said I'd missed that putt high and I'd missed it low, so I absolutely knew the read. And you know, certainly where it comes to Augusta National, I think part of the reason that Phil's had success there, you know, with three wins and Tiger's won as much as he had, is because you're talking about two guys with amazing memories and, you know, they can recall a putt from the nineties that did, you know, X, Y, Z. That's why I think Tiger's won as many times at Bay Hill as he has and Torrey Pines as he has. And Phil in the same respect has, you know, multiple wins on, on, on a handful of courses because these guys remember things from past years and they apply them going forward. And, you know, if I was, you know, if I was a young player today that, that looked like I was about to play in the next 15 or 20 ma Masters, I'd be writing absolutely everything down I possibly could because, you know, it's the one major that's going to go back there year after year. And so, yes, Phil, Phil had had that putt before. He'd missed it a couple of times. And uh, I think he knew when that thing was halfway there, it was going down. <laughs> So he, he follows it with a two-putt birdie on 13, and then on 14, he almost jars it from the fairway. How, how, how well could you see the ball from the fairway? Do you remember trying to figure out if that ball was actually going in the hole? Uh, <laughs> it, was, uh, it, it, was, it was the crowd reaction. It was a kind of a he – had, he had started hitting these three-quarter shots earlier that year, and, and um, it was a three-quarter nine yardage, but it was the first shot we played that day where we were like, okay, let's start factoring adrenaline. Hmm. And so um, I, I remember, you know, the discussion went from being a three-quarter nine to, you know, can we get wedged there? And the coolest thing happened to that bird. It's that birdie pin on, on 14 that, that you see guys, you know, hit the ball so close to. And the thing about that hole is, yeah, you can hit it a foot there, 
But if you roll two or three yards past the hole and the ball gets up, hung up in the fringe, it's literally a putt from 12 feet where you putt with your back to the hole because it has this viciously crazy break. And so we were having this discussion in the fairway about, you know, why we shouldn't hit the nine. And we started talking about the ball getting up, up in the fringe. And, and we were playing with DeMarco and Chris DeMarco hits this shot right at the flag that releases a little harder than he wanted to. And it gets caught up in the back fringe. And we're like, yeah, like that, <laughs> you know, so it was this kind of, moment where we're like, okay, well, you know, the, you know, the golfing gods are telling us something here. We, we just talked about how this can happen. It happened to DeMarco. We made the adjustment, went down a wedge and he hit it to six inches. God, it's amazing memory. Did the, did the shots not start to like blend together for you after all these years? As many times as you've been around that course? Never. We can do this when I'm 85 if you want. And I, still, <laughs> I think I'll still remember it. Like Thursday through Sunday or do the Sunday ones, are they that much more memorable? No, I, I think that uh, you certainly, you know, Sunday of your first, you know, the first Masters win that your player has, you know, is going to stand out. But it's crazy the stuff as a caddy that you remember. Hmm. It's, 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 it, it'll, it'll drive you nuts almost. So, Phil, not only, he shoots 31 on the back, but didn't birdie 15. Now, you guys get to 16. Uh, and I'm not positive if you were trailing at this point, but you, you knew you needed at least one birdie coming in. Take, take me through the shot on 16, knowing that the, his adrenaline level has to be at the, just the maximum amount that it can be at. With that pin position, again, it's the same Sunday pin. What's your guys' approach to the tee shot on 16 in that situation? Well, Phil, you know, it was it – was, it was a secret there for a bit. And then Phil ended up kind of talking about it in, her, in, an, in an interview after the fact. But so, you know, he's a real student of the game. And I, I'd like to think to, to a large degree I am too. And I had noticed if you go back over the years of these great little Masters movies that come out that we have all watched on the Golf Channel and, and elsewhere that show the, the recaps of the tournaments, that there were guys on a number of occasions that hit shots on 16 that they just absolutely pose over the, and the ball comes down, you know, 25, 30 feet long and, and, and they just seem shocked. And, and, you know, and when that happens to a tour player, you know, usually when they're, they've hit something to five feet, they kind of know it when the ball's in the air, they have a feel for the yards, they hit the shot, they know how they hit it. And when something comes down they're they're genuinely shocked. Well, you got to kind of take note of that. And I think it had happened to Davis one year. I think it had happened to, to Duval one year. And it might even have happened to Ernie that very day. I don't know. And so Phil and I had talked about it and about how, you know, we were kind of developing this theory there on 16 that no matter what the situation, when you get, you know, in the hunt or when you get that master's adrenaline going, if you get between clubs, you go with the lesser club. And even if you're not between clubs, it's a, it just plays a half club short. And it's a very unique piece of land, Chris. And I know you've been there. And when you're out there at the masters, whether you're in 40th place on Thursday or whether or not you're leading on Sunday, there are thousands of people around that hole. And it's in something of a Valley. There's uh, several thousand people left and behind the green and there's people right. And it's, I don't know what it is, but it's a very, very low point in the course. And we started wondering if maybe, you know, what was going on here with the, the topography and the number of people, maybe it was affecting the air in a sense that the ball was going to go further. And I'm not trying to sound like some kind of scientist here. We're just <laughs> trying to figure out why are guys hitting these shots that they pose over that are going long. And so Phil doesn't birdie 15. He now is one back and he needs to make one more to tie Ernie who's ahead of us. And we walked over to the, to the 16th tee and Phil says, let's plug it in. Let's go with the theory. Hmm. And I can't off the top of my head, remember the yards, but it was probably something like 186, which is an absolute normal good in those days, seven iron. And he hit eight. And so we said, you know what, let's just hit the hard eight and take our chances here. And he ripped an eight. And we really didn't know at that point where it was coming down. But it came down 18 feet right under the hole, uh, which is a great spot to be because you would literally, and I'm not exaggerating here, you would rather have 18 feet short of the hole on 16 of that Sunday pin than have five feet behind it. It is anything behind that hole is the hardest, most maybe brutal putt in golf that I've ever seen. You can't make it and you'll see guys three putt from 10 feet there regularly. And so 
he, you know, this ball came down 18 feet short. Sure, uh, sure enough, it had gone much, much further than we would have thought an eight iron would go. And he made it. And it was a cool moment because, you know, there he's now tied for the lead in the Masters. I'm over there. You want to jump out of your skin, but you're trying to look as cool as you can. <laughs> and he came over and he grabbed he grabbed the, the, the putter end of the club, the club end of the putter. And it hit me really hard in the rear end with the putter grip and said, let's make one more. And it was a really cool moment of all my moments with Phil. It was probably kind of a top 10. So even though we didn't know at that point yet what, what the future held in terms of the next couple of holes, for him to make that two, for the theory to work, and for him to say what he said, he didn't say it. it, it the crowd was going bananas. He had to yell it in my ear. But it, <laughs> it, was, a, it was a cool moment. Hmm. And what do you remember about that putt too? Is that just an experienced putt that you guys have had before and knew knew the knew the break exactly? Yeah, I'm I'm not reading any putts, you know, at Augusta. Just again, back to, I mean, that's not true. I, I guess occasionally, if Phil gets something that he's just not sure of, but again, because of his memory, because of the number of times he's played there, it's it's rare that I'm going to read a putt there. And so he, it was just a putt, you know, that breaks quite a bit to the left at the end, and he made it right in the middle. So coming up 18, you guys know you need birdie. I mean, in that situation, is Phil talkative? Does he make a joke? Is he does he say something to you to pump himself up? What is how does he handle that situation with you, or is it just like every other hole? Well, until I saw the the, the coverage, the tournament coverage later on, I I didn't realize because I guess I don't remember. I was probably walking ahead of him because you again you're you're so jacked up. You want to get out there and triple check your yardage and start thinking about what you're going to say to your player you know, when he says to you, you know, what do you like? Uh, but he was smiling the whole way up. I mean, there he was tied to the lead in the Masters. He hit the longest three wood you could ever hit. It's like 288 yards from that, that tee to that first fairway bunker. And we were, you know, so driver really wasn't an option. We were not going to put him in that sand. And, you know, he said, you know, can I get three wood to that bunker? And, and we're like, not in a million years. And he literally hit it a yard short of it. He, had, <laughs> he was just so jacked up. And, uh, and then, you know, we got out there and, you know, it, it's straight up the hill there. And it was like, you know, 172 playing, you know, 180. And, um, again, you're dealing with adrenaline. He's all fired up. We talked about it. It was just a perfect, good, hard cut eight iron. And, you know, he hit the shot. And, and, the, and the thing about it is, you know, that ball, I'm so glad he flushed it as much as he did because, again, you're pulling clubs to try and make a three. He's not trying to make a four there. And that ball, in terms of carrying the false front, probably only carried it by a few feet. But, again, fortunately, we got that just right, and it you know released to where it did behind the hole. But he wasn't playing you know, 20, 25 feet right like a lot of guys do. And, and a lot of guys have with success. O'Meara went on to make that putt to beat Fred in 98. But he took it right at the flag. It, it, it never left the, the pin. And, and then it got really interesting after that in terms of the read because of the DeMarco situation. Yeah, DeMarco hits his, hits a, his approach or chip right behind Phil's ball. And, gets, and Phil even cracks a smile and looks at him and knows he's going to get the perfect read. So was there anything major learned in that read, do you think? Or was that another situation where you kind of have a pretty good idea of how that putt's going to break? No, there was a big learn there. I think the, the putt broke definitively more than, uh, than Phil thought. And uh, I think he said that on the he's gone on the record saying that DeMarco's uh, putt was incredibly instrumental in, in the win and, and what happened there on 18 green, because I think Phil had an idea what he was going to play it. He saw DeMarco's putt fall off the table to the left there and Phil adjusted and and just snuck it in the left side there. Hmm. So we, we all know what happens next. He makes the putt. You come running at him and just and you say something in his ear. You can see it on the broadcast. You hug him and say something. Do you remember what you said? I think I said you did it. Okay. <laughs> I th- I, th- I think that after all that stuff and all the major stuff and you know how tough it was and how tough 2003 was for him, you know to come out and win the first tournament of 2004. I remember one of the golf publications earlier that year had had put out their predictions as to where they thought, you know, players were going to finish that year on the money list and I remember a big golf publication had Phil at 31. And the point was this guy is not even going to the Tour Championship. And I thought to myself, boy, oh boy, I said, that's, I thought that's, you know, that's pretty disrespectful in a sense. This guy's been a great player now for a number of years and granted he hasn't won a major yet, but he's, uh, he's certainly shown up and played well a lot and won a lot of tournaments for a guy his age. 
And uh, I, I just I remember running into the, to a, to the guy that week that wrote the article and just looking at him a little bit sideways and, and you know, and then for Phil to go on there and win the tournament and to establish himself as, you know, you know, one of the great players in the game and going on to be one of the greatest that ever played the game was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I, that moment, uh, I remember I was in high school and I even under I think I understood this, the the nature of that moment or how the, the brevity of that moment, I guess, because I mean, it was it was intense. And the, I still think rewatching it, the noise of that day and that back nine charge, I can't remember in my lifetime there being a louder one. Is that the case for you? Yeah, it was it was it was incredible. It was, you know, almost make your ears ring. And my wife was beyond nine months pregnant and and i literally had to run home you know for the birth of my my first our first child uh our son oliver and so I, there was a lot going on and i, I will tell you it, it was phil had a couple of weeks off after that and didn't play again until new orleans so he goes to new orleans i don't think he even played a practice round but he showed up and when you're playing in the pro on wednesday and phil's an early pro guy typically and so you're teeing off at 650 and you're out there and there's a guy, you know, a couple of volunteers and the guy making the announcements and, and that's about it. And you stand there and the guy goes next on the tee, the 2004 Masters champion, Phil Mickelson. And it was such a cool thing to hear and something you've been aching to hear for so many years. Phil asked him if he would say it again. <laughs> and so Phil backed off his tee shot and got introduced twice at the next tournament we played at. So that was a cool moment. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so 2006, uh, you guys, you, you come back, you come back to the golf course and it has changed pretty dramatically. They lengthened a bunch, I think six holes. And what, what do you remember about the first time you guys saw it? Did you think this is an even better thing for us or this hurt us a bit? Or what was your first thought when you saw the new golf course? Well, Phil had won the previous week by 13. <laughs> um, so Atlanta was the week before, and I guess we had probably gone to Augusta National before that, but we had heard some changes were going to be made. They were going to put trees right on 11. They were going to lengthen the seventh hole and, and the other things they did. I guess 17 changed also. But it was shocking how hard it was, and especially the seventh hole. The seventh hole is you know, a very, very small green from front to back, literally only maybe 10, 12, no, that's not true. I'd say 12 to 15 paces. And I do remember one day in 2006, early in the tournament, Phil hit the fairway there and we had five iron into the green. And we're used to hitting nine irons, wedges, sand wedges in there. And the course was playing so hard that we stood out there in the fairway and Phil and I agreed that the only way to make par in the hole, I think it was windy, tough conditions, was we intentionally hit the ball over the green into the gallery to set up our angle on our third shot to get up and down for four, which he did. But it was, I mean, guys, it, it was, guys were like blown away by how hard it had gotten in a very short period of time. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is a whole new era here. And I, I guess that was the Hootie Johnson era. And it was like, you know, batting down the hatches there because this place has just gotten really, really hard. Yeah, and Phil won at seven under, I think, that year. And then the next year, Zach Johnson won at one over. I think that they were, uh, you know, there were a lot of changes in that time period. And it, uh, I think there was, there was, was that the year that there was some weather? Because he finished the third round on that Sunday morning. Is that right? There was definitely some weather. Yes, he, we had to finish some golf on Sunday morning. And uh, and then, you know, golf's a funny game. And, and my closest friend, who's a caddy, is Joe LaCava, who now caddies for Tiger Woods. But he caddied for years and years for Fred Couples and I you know I just remember how that whole thing kind of lined up that week and Fred is a great player who is you know unlucky in my opinion only to win one Masters and also very unlucky to, to, to be dealt the card that he was dealt in terms of his health and his back and whatnot that there's no telling what he might have done had he played with a good back his entire career but we got paired with him on Sunday and, and it was it was, you know, a beautiful, beautiful Sunday in Augusta, you know, 70 degrees and sunny and virtually no wind. And it was a real cool experience to be out there for four or five hours with him. So there weren't a ton of uh, fireworks on the front nine. Phil actually birdied seven on that Sunday and eight. And then on 13, he pushed his drive a little. Do you guys do you remember the conversation between you two while the ball was in the air? Well, if you pushed it, it was probably get up, you know, uh, <laughs> please, please, Lord. I mean, something like that. Go ahead. You got something well, for me? I, ju- I literally just watched it. So I, you're yelling at it. Get out there. Get out there. Oh, and while yeah. it's still yeah. in the air, he goes, I hit it. 
Like he, yeah. he he wasn't worried about it cutting the corner, but it's just yeah. it's so funny how, how he is he's calming you down while the ball was in the air and how you thought it was potentially in trouble. So yeah, so was, Phil hits a very pronounced slice there, and the ball probably only has to go about two hundred and forty fifty yards, you know, to get around the dog leg. But you know, again, for a lefty like Bubba or Phil, you're hitting such a pronounced slice that yeah, it's easy to you know not that tough to hit a slice, but you got to make sure you cover your yards before the ball actually does start slicing. And so he makes birdie there. It's in the fairway easily. And then he gets uh pin high on 15 in two and chips up, actually lips out his chip. And he's got about a 10, 12 footer maybe for birdie. He sinks it. And do you remember what he said to you or what happened to you after that putt? No, let me hear it. Well, I mean, he comes right up to you. He clearly like tries to get your attention and says, great read. So was that a putt oh, that wow, you nice. chimed in on? Yeah, that, I mean, it, that's cool. I mean, that's that's cool to hear. Um, yeah, I, I, now that you say that, I, I do I, I do kind of remember. It was funny, the previous hole, not to go backwards, but the previous hole, Fred had hit it to three feet on on 14 and had three-putted. And, and it had just kind of shook up the whole day because they had been going head-to-head and back and forth. And now it was Phil's tournament to win. It felt like, and so I do remember. I do remember getting called in for the read there. Yeah, and the ball I think going a little to the right. Phil wanted some some affirmation on the read, and I think it was a left edge putt, and he made it. Yeah. Hmm. So now you go to 16 in a very different situation than in 04. You're leading by four. Now, do you approach that tee shot any differently? Do you try to play that shot safer? Because he ended up going right at the flag. But was that the intention? I think that was the intention because. Back in those days, you know, and of course, this is the era when the course played its hardest. If you had that left pin on on uh, on 16 and you hit it up on the right shoulder of the green up top, so to speak, you were you were going to have 10 or 15 feet for par. And that's kind of changed now, I think, with the softening of the course where you, you're able now to get that putt a little bit closer. But back then, it was almost a guaranteed three putt. And so I think Phil's Phil's, you know, take on that hole was, you know what, I, I got to take it right at it. And, and if you think about it, too, and he, he makes a very good point about this, it's a really tough hole. You know, as many great shots as there are for lefties there, 16 is not one of them. Because when a lefty tees up his ball in 16, waggles and looks at the hole, every time they look up to look up at the pin, you see water. Mm-hmm. But when a, when a righty does it, you see green grass. So uh, that whole visually kind of messes with your head as a left-hander. And so I think Phil's like, you know what? I've got to hit a shot here, and I'm just going to take it right at it. The last thing I want to do is hit a shot where I'm looking and end up having 45 feet for birdie. So he goes on to win win in 06 rather comfortably um, and then zooming ahead to 2010. Uh, you guys are one shot back going into the final round, but this year was just such a unique year for from Phil from a family perspective. What was the lead up like going into that year with everything Phil had going on with uh, Amy's Amy's cancer diagnosis? Well, it was difficult to say the least. It was, uh, you know, golf wasn't obviously the most important thing by any stretch. Um and it was just a question of, you know, without getting into too much detail, taking care, you know, of the situation as much as I could and, and looking after, you know, making sure I was doing everything I could for Phil. And, you know, just golf, it, it was secondary, even though for Phil, it was a release and a place to get away to from the other things he had going on in his life. And, you know, there were, that was a remarkable week, you know, for, for, for so many reasons. Obviously, there was a lot going on. And, and I, if I'm not mistaken, you know, I think I may have said this to you at some point over dinner somewhere. You know, Phil played as bad as I've ever seen him play the week before in Houston. I think he made the cut, but it was just – it just wasn't there. And, and, and he wasn't clicking, and, and there were a million reasons why. Uh, he was – you know, he had a lot on his mind, to say the least. And uh, – for him to go from from that and from there to where he got to in 2010 and and you know was 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 mind-boggling. I mean it was it's a real credit to him and his backbone that he was able to win that week. It's it's amazing to rewatch these three Masters wins, you know, kind of consecutively like I just I skipped around to some of the shots, but again he takes it right over the flag on 12. He's got pretty much the same putt. Is that I mean assuming at this point there's no conversation that needs to be had about that putt. Gosh, no. Yeah. I, <laughs> all I need to do is st- make sure I clean the ball properly when he gives it to me and get the heck out of the way. So he buries it. It gets to 13. 
hits his drive in the pine straw. Uh, the, 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 it's better than I remember the broadcast as far as them kind of getting quiet and letting the caddy and player conversation happen and the amount of the things that you guys went through. Was that a, a, a quick conversation between you and Phil regarding going for that green on 13? Uh, or was that longer drawn out that maybe the cameras didn't catch? Yeah, it was... I guess what it was, Chris, was that, you know, normally you, you, you want, you know, Phil's a very technical guy. And, and, and if he's got a question, certainly as a caddy, you're going to answer it. And people over the years have enjoyed, I think, conversations between player and caddy and maybe between Phil and I that have gone on for, you know, 10 or 15 seconds or whatever. The weird thing about this was it took place over a lengthy period of time because we were waiting so long for the green to clear. And so when we got up there and Phil, you know, had this, you know, 206 yards that he had to the hole, we were waiting and waiting for KJ Choi and whoever he was playing with to to leave the green. And I think KJ was leading at that point. And so we got up there. I gave Phil the yardage. He had, when you go back and you look at it on TV, TV does no justice to how, narrow the gap in the trees was it looks fairly wide on television but i can tell you that it was about as wide as uh the length of a dozen balls a a box of a dozen balls so it was about that kind of width and it was a lot of pine straw and my biggest concern wasn't that phil could fit it through the gap in a perfect world it was that phil would lose his footing and then hit one of the trees as a result and so if the ball comes back and hits him or goes into the creek or goes into the gallery, whatever the case may be, excuse me, the patrons, um, you know, it's a bad, bad situation. But, you know, to Phil's credit, he's thinking about making something happen. And that that's part of what makes him great. So I gave him the yardage. He tells me I'm going for it in two. So, OK, I know that now it's part of my job is any caddy's job is, you know, sometimes when you talk to your player, you know, they're a hundred percent in and sometimes they're 80% in and it's not hard to judge, but sometimes you may kind of go back a little bit just to kind of see where they're at. And so I, I, I said to Phil, Hey, you know, he, the previous day on Saturday, he had made three straight, excuse me, two straight Eagles, almost three on 13, 14 and 15. I just reminded him, you're the best wedge player in the game. If you lay this up, you're going to have a very routine up and down, you know, for four. And he he said, I'm going. Okay. Okay. So now I know he's 100% and that's great. So now, again, we're, we're waiting for the screen to clear. It seems like it's taking forever. And finally, KJ Choi putts and he misses a six-footer that we assume is for birdie, but it turns out was for par, I believe. And we hear this murmur in the crowd. I turn to the cameraman right behind us and say, what's up? He goes, I think, believe you said, KJ just made six. You guys are now tied for the lead. So all I'm going to do now is Phil's a big scoreboard watcher. It's, it's my, my job, I think, at this point to say to him, hey, does the fact that you're leading now change the way you want to play this hole? And he looks at me and he says, listen, if I'm going to win this tournament today, I'm going to have to hit a great shot under a lot of pressure. I'm going to do it right now. And that is like the ultimate get the F out of the way to your caddy. You know what I mean, <laughs> that is I've got it. it. You like six iron. I like six iron. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to do this thing. I've now said what I need to say and I get out of there as quickly as I possibly can. And he hits, you know, the most famous shot of his career. So it was, uh, it was an incredible kind of, geez, it was probably three or four minutes that felt like half an hour. Hmm. I'll never forgive him for missing the putt. I, 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 <laughs> I, I can't watch the shot now because knowing that he misses the putt. Um, so yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, it's, it was funny. As you know, from being around there, there are fountains and bridges that have been dedicated to, you know, the Hogan's and the Nicholas's and the Palmer's and stuff like that. And I always wondered to myself if he had made that putt, you know, would it increase the chance that Phil might get his own little monument out there at some point, given his (laughs) success in the tournament, but uh, you never know. I remember attending in 2012 and they had a little white little pin flag there from the exact spot that he had hit it at. So I would think at some point they've at least got that spot marked if there's ever going to be a plaque that goes in there. So um, you guys get to 15. You guys have a pretty extensive conversation over that shot. Uh, What do you remember about that conversation? I just remember that we the, the adrenaline was going crazy and that we that, that that he hit a shot that 
that made absolutely no sense that you could get the smartest man in the world and, and teach him all about yardages and adrenaline and this and that. And you could never, you could never quantify the fact that he had 196 yards or, or whatever it was he had and hit eight iron. Hmm. And it, it, it was basically a maybe a comfortable six hard seven yardage. But it was it was those days that you get in Augusta in April uh, on Sunday. It's 72 degrees. It's dry as can be. There's not a cloud in the sky. It's sunny. And these guys are compressing the ball. And, you know, Phil's not a guy, e- even with a lead in that tournament where you know, if his he hits a shot and it ends up two yards over that green, even though that's you know he's going to make four there nine times out of ten, that's not what he wants. He wants to hit a shot and you know and and be rewarded for it. And over the green there to him is not a reward. So he wanted to play at that hole. And he, I, we, I would like you know, I know this is crazy. I think it's a tomahawk eight iron. And he agreed, and he tomahawked it to 10 feet, exactly pin high, if I remember correctly. And I just remember walking down there, shaking my head, going, my goodness gracious, that, that's one of the, if not the craziest club selection we've ever had. Hmm. Well, I, I love that, too, that conversation, because he before he goes to hit it, it shows his trust in you. He says, if it, if, if it starts to hurt, because you're talking about the wind, yeah. if it starts to hurt, let me know. Yeah. And you, you, before you, before you went to go hit it, you said, come on, let it go. Like I, It sounded like you were kind of, he was a, maybe a bit wavering on the club choice and you really wanted him to commit to it. I and mean, is that well, good interpretation? I, I think what I was probably saying is you can't hit this hard enough kind of thing that if I said, let it go, I was probably saying we need every inch of this eight iron mm-hmm. knowing that, you know, if he hits it a quarter inch out on the toe, you know, a groove low, you know, this thing's not only going to go in the water, it's not even going to be close. But the thing about great players like Phil Tiger, Fred in his day, all, all these guys that could that were are really long hitters is they rarely, rarely miss hit the ball, especially under pressure. I mean, I mean, you know, that may sound like okay, but you know, PJ Tour pros they'll miss hit shots. They'll hit a little heavy. They'll hit a little thin. But but I, I remember Phil in his prime and probably still to this day, he could literally he would literally miss hit five shots a year. <laughs> everything else was just flush right in the mouth. And, and I was just basically saying to him there, you know, you've got to tomahawk this to get it there. Miss hit five shots a year. That might be the best thing I've ever heard. Uh, <laughs> that walk coming up 18. What do you remember about that? Just kind of, you know, heaven on earth in a sense, it's just the greatest feeling in the world. And um, I think Phil, Phil drove it in the right rough there, I think, and, and, and had a little root issue and whatnot. And, you know, you're, you, you know, it, he was still going to win, but I remember you're still kind of grinding your butt off and you, you, you're doing everything you can. And, but it's just surreal. And, and, and then, of course, I think there was some debate that day that will not debate, but there was no way of knowing whether or not his wife was going to come out to, to be there. And I remember that she was there. And, you know, so as was my wife with her. And so that, you, you know, you, you, you know, you're going to, your player's going to win the masters. You're, it's an honor to be out there. It, it's just the greatest privilege in the world to caddy at that event, let alone have your player, you know, be fortunate enough to win it. And then to look back there with all they had going on and to see that was pretty mind blowing. So Phil knew she was there next to the green. I think he saw her play the eight on the green there. You have a chance to look around a little bit. Uh, with the lead he had, and and she was there by the uh, the scoring area that used to be behind 18 green. Did that win feel like the most significant of the three? Uh, I, I'm sure it did. I, again, I can't speak for Phil. I'm sure it did for Phil. I mean, I, I tell people a lot when they ask, you know, when Phil won his first, first Masters in 04, it, it was a relief. It was great. But it was a relief. I mean, it was you're never going to have to answer that question again. I'm sure maybe Sergio might say, say the same thing if he goes on to have, you know, win multiple majors. I mean, it's great and it's an incredible experience, but it's just so nice that that you're, you're never going to have to answer that question again. And that every single tournament that Phil goes to for the rest of his life, whether you're Phil or Sergio or Tiger Woods, there's going to be little kids out there with yellow Masters flags asking you to sign him. And it's just a reminder that, you know, what you've been able to accomplish. And it's a great, great feeling. But, um, you know, 
the, the, the third one was probably more significant than, than the first in some ways, I think, to your point. Hmm. So of the, the 2012 Masters is the most recent of the one that got away. Is it, was it any easier to stomach that one when you've already won three of them? No, probably not. <laughs> you want to win every single one of them. It, it, golf's funny like that. You know, I remember telling, you know, when Phil won his Open Championship in 2013, I remember, you know, co- come, Phil played in Akron his next event and finished, let's say, 20th. And I remember we were coming down the stretch and we were grinding like crazy to, to, to finish 20th at the very next event after what I thought was the biggest win of his career. And so it, it's just funny, you know, how something amazing can happen in golf and and you just want more and more. And and and, and certainly uh, not winning in 2012. Certainly then he'd won three of them, but you want to win every single one. Without the same rooting interest as you usually have at the Masters, is there anyone out there, kind of in your in your experience in your uh, few few months as a commentator, is there anyone out there in particular you have your eye on as a as a good fit for Augusta this year? Well, geez, this is a long conversation, I think, because you know as well as I do that golf is. I mean, this Masters is lining up to be epic, and and as many great players and great stories as there are right now. I think if we get, you know, three of those guys and, you know, battling it out on Sunday, it, it, it could be one of the great masters ever played. I, I don't know where to start. I, I certainly think, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll stick to it, I think that I, I've been saying for years now, Phil's not done winning the masters. He's going to win another one. He's, he's you know, he's going to, you know, it was a big deal when Jack Nicholas won the, the, the masters at 46. Excuse me, I got a little phone ring in the background here. Um, but I think Phil will 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 surpass that and, and is capable of winning that tournament in his fifties, and I and I seriously mean that. Hmm. Um, but I think there are four or five guys that are kind of co favorites, and uh, you know certainly Justin Thomas, Dustin, certainly Phil, um, and, and 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 Tiger. I, I, you know I can't stress enough with this whole memory thing. I think that you know Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson are capable of going to that tournament and with their B minus games and winning. Hmm. And not yes. every not everybody can say that, but I, I I stand by that. I think that they can go there and play decent, and 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 you know make some putts and know which where these where these putts go and know how the ball reacts and this and that. I think that that you there's no substitute there for the kind of knowledge those two guys have about that golf course. Awesome. Well, Bones, this was absolutely perfect. I appreciate you walking us through all the memories and uh, <laughs> hope you are able to sit back and put your feet up and enjoy it this, this go around. And uh, thank you so much for uh, all of your tremendous insight. It's always my pleasure to be with you, Chris. Thanks for having me. You got it. Take it easy, man. You too. Bye-bye. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah! Yeah! I mean, that's... Better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything.